want to start by telling you a story. Uh, this story goes like this. It's a Korean fable. Some of you might know this. Some of you might have heard this a lot, like I did. Anyway, there was a frog who never listened to his mom. Always did the opposite thing. Mom says, go to the left. Frog would go to the right. Mom says, sit down. He would not sit down. He would just start hopping. Mom would say, oh, look, try this panchan that I made for you. And then he would say, no, right? And then eat everything else besides that, out of spite. Mom was uh, one day close to dying. You know, he had gone through this whole life like this um, disobedient. But then one day, you know, she's about to die and she's thinking, you know what? I want a proper burial, so I'm going to tell my son to bury me near the riverbanks. Because if I tell him to do that, he'll probably bury me in the mountains, giving me, therefore, a proper burial like I want. So right before she dies, she summons her son to her bedside and says, Son, when I die, I want you to promise me that you will bury me, not in the mountainside, but in the riverbanks. And so, sure enough, uh, she dies. And then, you know, he's, it starts weighing on his mind, the frog. He thinks, oh, you know, I, I spent my whole life disobeying my mom. I should just once obey my mom. And so what does he do? He buries her near the riverbank. And that's why when the monsoons come, the frogs cry, kegur, kegur, right? <laughs> that's why frogs uh, croak, right? That's the fable. That's the Korean fable. Anyway, this is what parents tell their kids when their kids don't want to listen. And I heard this a lot growing up. I heard this all the time. Anyone else hear this? Yes? Okay, we got some disobedient people. Nice. No, that's not nice. Um, I was that frog, for sure. Every time my parents told me to do something, I did the exact opposite. Not every time, but, you know, a lot. Enough to, for me to remember that. Um, that little bit about, like, try this panchan, I, I literally did that. My dad would tell me, like, hey, try this, like, panchan that your mom made, and I would... After he said that, now have something to disobey. So I would disobey and eat everything else besides that, just out of spite. Just because he told me, try this, I didn't want to try it, even if like, I wanted to try it. You know what I mean? Any direction that my parents gave me was an opportunity for disobedience. That's how I thought. Um, so I got to explain a little bit more about myself. Uh, some of you are like, he's, he's so bad. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not, I'm not. <laughs> Anyway, um, so the thing about me is I love freedom. I love the idea of it. I love freedom. If I had, like, a core value for myself, it would be, like, freedom, you know, freedom, you know? You guys know MBTI, uh, Myers-Briggs, yeah? Um, so I'm in, can you guess, anybody? Dang it, you already knew. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm an ENFP. And, and if you, like, searched your personality type, uh, on 16personalities.com, I read my description for ENFPs, and it like fits me to the T. It says, ENFPs are fiercely independent, and much more than stability and security, they crave creativity and freedom. That's right. I crave creativity and freedom. Freedom. Okay? Maybe, maybe it's the American in me. Maybe it's the ENFP in me. I don't know. I just love the idea of freedom and doing what I want. So committed to my own selfishness that I would argue my way into or out of things. Uh, so very prideful, so American, so selfish. That's me. Um, 
ever since I was a kid. Now, let's, let's get into this idea of freedom. What is freedom? Well, the dictionary definition, it's always good to go back to the dictionary. It gives you a good understanding, right? It says the state of being free or at liberty rather than in confinement or under physical restraint. It's a good thing, right? Uh, exemption from external control, interference, regulation, etc. The power to determine action without restraint. Personal liberty as opposed to bondage or slavery. Okay? Nobody likes bondage, right? We want to be free. Okay? This is kind of like the motto of the world. Do what you want to. Right? Um, it's this idea, this idea of Western individuality. Uh, the throne of your heart. You rule it. It is your, you are the captain of your own ship. Right? Uh, you should do what you want because it's your life. Right? Do what thou wilt. Anyone ever heard this? Do what thou wilt? Yes? Do what thou wilt is actually the motto of Satanists. Okay? It is. It literally is. Do some research if you need to. But uh, do what thou wilt. You ever see like Jay-Z wear that t-shirt cap? Do what thou wilt? Um, <laughs> Jay-Z, Beyonce, they all have that stuff. Um, yeah, a lot, you'd be surprised how many people are influenced by that kind of stuff if you do your research. But anyway, um, it's, it, it seems kind of strange, right? Um, do what thou wilt is the motto of people that worship Satan. Would, you would think it's like, hate God, don't go to church, be anti-Christian, right? Wear black and do all this stuff. It's not. It's actually do what thou wilt. That is their motto. Place yourself at, as number one in the seat of your heart. You are the master of your own ship. No, you serve no one but yourself. Treat yourself, right? Do what you want. That is the motto of the world and subsequently Satanists. All right, so um, there's, another, there's a story in the Bible that many of you are probably familiar with. It's called the prodigal son. So this is going to be the main text for our uh, little message today. So if you have your Bible, uh, if you could turn to Luke chapter 15, we'll, um, we'll look at that. Luke chapter 15. We're going to be looking at verse 11 through 24. This is a parable that probably many of you have heard before, but uh, let's take a look at it. Okay, I'll go ahead and read it. The parable of the lost son. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have food to spare, and here I am starving to death? I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. Then his son said to him, 
Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. So this is a story I'm sure many of us have heard, but uh, Jesus tells this parable to give the idea of what it's like for God um, looking at us when, when, we, when we come to him in repentance, when we come back to him. He's just a, a father waiting with his arms wide open, right? And that's essentially what, what this parable is telling us. But, um, I mean, let's look at this son, right? He, if you look at it, in, in one sense, it almost seems like, oh, okay, he's, he just wants to be free from his father. He, he's just seeking independence, right? For us Westerners, right, we're kind of used to the idea that when you turn 18, you go to college. Your parents are ready to give you the boot, and you go off to college, and you are off, and it's great, right? Um, but in the Jewish context, it wasn't like that. See, when he said to his father, um, I want my inheritance, I want my fair, a share of the estate, essentially what he's saying is, I don't care about you, dad. I just want your things. I want my inheritance. Because when do you get your inheritance? You get it when your parents die. So essentially what he's saying to his dad is, I don't care about you. I want you to die. Give me my stuff. Okay, that's what he's doing. So you see here in his heart, the, the, this do what thou wilt playing out. He's so selfish, he dishonors his own father, essentially telling him, I want nothing to do with you. And he goes off. And in so, so many ways, we are like this, right? Jesus tells us this parable so that we can identify with uh, what it is like for the father to lose a son and for us to under, get, get a small understanding of what it is. So many times we want to keep the throne of our own hearts. We want to keep the control room to ourselves. We don't want to give God any room for it. When he's God in heaven, we tell God, I don't want anything to do with you. Just give me your blessings, right? We say, let me just finish school, and then I'll focus on you. God. I'll go out to church after I finish my finals, when I have all this free time, right? Or when I get married, then I'll really live for you. Because, you know, when you hit marriage, you like life just plateaus, right? That's not true, by the way. I don't know out of experience, but uh, that's what I hear. Life doesn't ever just plateau. It's always complex and crazy. So uh, don't ever get that lie. Let that lie get to you where you think, oh, later, I will you know, make things right. It doesn't work that way. Anyway, um, yeah, we are so quick to say to God, give me what is mine. We pray, we pray, right? Even for us who don't believe, not us, but, you know, even for those of us who don't believe, um, it's, it's very easy to come to God and say, God, give me this, give me this, give me this, right? Uh, even atheists sometimes will ask for prayer requests because, just because, just to see what happens, right? You know, God, all he really wants from us is a relationship. He, his love is, is unfailing. It's never-ending. It is as strong as the grave, as it says in the Bible. Uh, it's almost like the image I get is, uh, you guys know that cartoon? Uh, what is it? That skunk, Pepe Le Pew? It's like always going up like, it's like, right? Uh, you know, sometimes I feel like 
that's, that's God on us. Maybe that's not a good example. Like, delete that from your mind. But yes, in a way, it's, it's like that. God is relentless in his love for us. And for whatever reason, we, we are so quick to turn away from him. Now, let's face it, even when we want to obey, a lot of times it's hard. We just fail. We suck at reciprocating love to God. We want to do our own thing. We want to be free. You know, this is so true. I, I resonated with this idea of, of being free. You know, like I said, I love the idea of freedom and independence. Um, but anytime I saw a TV show that, that kind of had this, like, theme in it, I really resonated with it. There was this one episode of The Simpsons. Anyone like The Simpsons? Is it too out of your generation? Okay, all right, cool. They're still making new episodes, right? It's not the same as it used to be, but uh, whatever. Um, yeah, there's this one episode where Bart gets emancipation from his dad, and he gets like he, he signs his paper, and, and I was watching it. I was like, yeah, I like that idea, you know? <laughs> um, but yeah, anyway, that's, that's just a little funny example. Not so funny. How are y'all doing tonight? Good? Are you still with me? <laughs> I might do that every so often because uh, I got to reorder some pages and stuff, and so I might lose my place. So if I do that, I might pull one of those like pre- preacher tricks on you and be like, everyone turn your partner and tell them three things about them. Go. You know? <laughs> I'm just kidding. I won't do that. Maybe. I will. We'll see. All right. Um, so yeah, we love this idea of freedom. And, but you know, is freedom so bad? Is it so bad? Is independence so bad? Well, um, freedom is a good thing. And even biblically, God is all about freedom. Right? In Galatians 5, it says, It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Hey, God talks about freedom. Exodus, the book of Exodus, is all about freedom. The Israelites are enslaved for hundreds of years by the Egyptians, and it's all a story about uh, God raising up a leader to bring them out of slavery with a mighty hand, uh, with signs and wonders. God is all about setting people free. Isaiah 61, verse 1, says, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and release from darkness for the prisoners. God is all about freedom. So what's the big deal with independence? What's the big deal with freedom? Well, the thing is, we have to understand what freedom actually is. And we have to understand what freedom actually is. Because freedom apart from God is no freedom at all. Okay, I'll say that again. Freedom apart from God is no freedom at all. See, God demands our obedience, even though we have the choice to not obey. You are essentially a slave to what you obey. Think about the way you make your decisions. Think about why you are here, why you do anything you do, why you eat, why you sleep, why you study, why do you go to college? You ever ask these questions? Don't ask too late, right? (laughs) Um, But yeah, if you think about it, right, everyone has like, Reasons for why they do something. Okay, if I had like a graph, I would like totally draw this if I was a teacher and I had a whiteboard. And I, I am a teacher and I usually have a whiteboard, so just bear with me, okay? Imagine you have these concentric circles, okay? And then like on the outside, it's like, it's like your outer reasoning. It's like, oh, I do this because, you know, um, I don't know, I should get good grades, so I study. But really, why are you studying? You're a li- you go a little bit more inside. It's like, oh, your parents want you to study. 
Okay, but why do your parents want you to study? Why? And, and why do you want to listen to your parents? If you go a little bit deeper, it's you do it because you want to do what is right or what you feel is right or what you think is good for you, right? Essentially, if you go deeper and deeper enough, you'll find that the most uh, captivating motivator or the most central motivator is actually yourself, Right? As much as it is your parents, as much as it is your friends, as much as it's all these other things and it's a web of complicated motivations, ultimately at the center of it is it's yourself. You serve yourself. A lot of us, if we're honest, we serve ourselves. It says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, I'm just going to read it real quick. It says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world. And of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. So the world actually is under this influence of the spirit of the air. Essentially what it's saying, that is a euphemism for Satan. You are under the influence of Satan. Uh, uh, let's rewind back to what I said earlier. Uh, what is the motto of Satanists? Do what thou wilt. Do what you want. So essentially, everyone who is not of God, who is not of the obedience of God, you are working under the influence of Satan. Isn't that funny? Satan's actually don't, Satanists actually don't believe in Satan in the way that we do. But they still are somehow saying, do what you want. Do what you want. Do what thou wilt. That is Satanism. Ephesians 2.1 essentially uh, points that out. Now, um, the Bible uses the word slave... Uh, it's, it's an interesting thing. In Romans uh, 6, 15 to 18, it says, uh, What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? By no means. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one you obey, whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. You have been set free from sin have, and have become slaves to righteousness. Okay, the Bible uses the word slave. It's very interesting. Um, but essentially, it's either or. You are either a slave to God, to righteousness, or you are a slave to everything else, which is under the, the, the principalities, the ruler of the air, Satan, yourself. Do what you want. You can either let God as your number one, your center uh, person who sits on the throne of your heart, or... It's yourself, which is essentially Satan. So this is an interesting use of words, right? That we are either slaves to God or slaves to not God or everything else. Um, but obviously, it's, it's strong language just to kind of get our attention. But um, I think the way, a good way of understanding it is, we, I mean, we don't like that word, right? Like, we're slaves to God. I don't think God would, God would use that word. But, you know, th this is what Paul says um, but essentially what it's saying is that when, without God, we are nothing, right? Without God, we, it, you know, there's something missing. You guys know, um, Billie Holiday? Anybody? Billie Holiday? Yes, thank you. Two? <laughs> okay, Billie Holiday is, a from, from many decades ago. She's one of my favorite singers. One of, consider one of the greatest voices of all time. She sings this song called Without Your Love goes like this without your love i should not sing <laughs> i'm 
I'm like a song without words, just like a nest without birds, without your love, without your love. I'm like a plane without wings, a violin with no strings, without your love. Very beautiful. I'll, I'll just say it, okay? I'll say it once. Without your love, I'm like a song without words, like a nest without birds. Uh, without your love, I'm like a plane without wings, a violin with no strings, without your love. It's essentially like a man without God, right? We were made for God. We were made to worship and love him. And, you know, God says all these commands, all the commands hinge on these. Love the Lord your God, your heart, with all your soul, heart, mind, and strength. And the second is like it. Love the Lord your God. Or sorry, that's the first. I <laughs> love your neighbor as yourself, right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart. And that's sad imagery, right? An eagle with no wings. How sad is that? A fish that can't swim. Come on, man. That's sad. That's so sad. A man without God. It kind of f- follows that analogy. A man without God is, is sad. Because... Ultimately, we were made for God. We were made by God for God. And so when, when you have a man without God, it's like an eagle with no wings. It's like, ugh. It's like, ugh. You know, like, ugh. You know that feeling? It's like, ugh. You know, how do you describe that? Like, in Korean, you say, like, ashiwo, right? Do you guys, is, that, is that right? Am I, am, I saying, is that, am I saying the right word? It's like, oh, yeah. My Korean's really bad, so um, delete that from your memory. <laughs> So, main point being that we were made for God, and we are most free in him. Because you could free a bird of its wings, you could free a fish from its fin, you could free a plane from its wings, but it's not really freeing, is it? C.S. Lewis says this, if we find, uh, uh, if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. I'll say it again. If we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. You could sub another world for God. We were made for God. The unseen God. If we find nothing that we see that actually fills our hearts to the point where we feel a completely at one, at peace in the way that we were made, completely whole, then that should tell us that there's nothing that can fill it. That it's essentially God. Only God can fill that God-shaped hole in our hearts. It says in the Bible that he has set eternity in our hearts. That's a very puzzling phrase. And I think there's a lot of ways you can interpret it. But I think essentially what it is saying is that there's this God-shaped hole in our hearts that only God can fill and nothing else in this world. No matter how hard you try, no matter how hard you try to drown it out, with alcohol or drugs or, or sex or whatever it is, grades, success, whatever you have, that thing is for you, it will not fill it. So I want to tell you a little bit about my story. Um, <clears throat> so I grew up in a pretty uh, typical Korean-American Christian household uh, in America, suburban life. Uh, I went to church all my life, and uh, I didn't come to know Jesus until I was uh, in seventh grade, 2000. That was 18 years ago. You didn't need to know that, but um, 
Yeah, so it was a pretty typical thing. I went to a church youth retreat over the summer, heard the gospel message, heard about the sin and, and, and God's way of, of bringing salvation, and I, and I heard it, and I understood it, and I accepted it. And I can confidently say that from that day, I had a real faith that grew, that I had a real relationship with God. But I didn't really give Jesus that like center throne in my heart. I was still king of my own life, in a sense. But God is so patient, right? He's so patient with us. It took me a long time to learn. It took me several years. But uh, essentially, uh, after that, you know, growing up in the kind of environment that I did with other Korean Americans with no real sense of strong identity and, and being influenced by the world, uh, yeah, we, we, we tried to live that double life. You know, you, we're going to church, and it's real. The faith is real. You're growing. I'm learning in, in, in the scriptures, and, I, and I'm growing. But at the same time, I am in the world. I'm going to parties. I'm drinking. I'm starting to smoke. And I'm doing drugs and all this stuff. Pretty typical in, in American suburban life. So, you know how I said before that I, w- I was very, like, uh, rebellious. I, I, I wanted to do what I wanted to do to the point where I started to argue and justify in my own head. I would tell myself, oh, it's okay. There's nothing wrong with this. There's nothing wrong with smoking weed. It's a plant, right? Bob Marley used to say, it's like, weed, herb, 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 herb is a plant, you know? Like, in my horrible Jamaican, but I love Bob. Bob is one of my favorites. Anyway, I, I would justify. I went up, I went up to my youth pastor, and I would tell him, hey, um, hey, pastor, I smoke weed. Tell me why it's wrong, right? I was, like, so sure of myself and so sure of my arguments that I didn't care what the, what the Bible had to say. I didn't care what my pastor had to say. I just wanted to do what I wanted to do. So, you know, it just kept going. And then right around college, I, I just got really knee-deep into it. I just drank all the time, smoked weed all the time. I, I went to, I did wake and bake. You smoke weed and you go to class. And then um, I was fine. I was, you know, like B student, whatever, you know, just coasting through college and just doing my stuff. And I thought I was okay. I, thought, I honestly thought at that point in my life that I would continue to do drugs until I was like now, 30. <laughs> you know, that, back then that felt like a long time away, but now here I am. But uh, <laughs> um. Yeah, I really thought, like, I was just okay with it. I was like, whatever, I'm okay with it. I believe it's okay. Um, yeah, I was okay with it. And then one day, I, I decided to do some mushrooms. Uh, and, you know, okay, this, just to give you an idea, my, my justification for all this was it's natural. I never did cocaine because that's like, that's like when you, you know, that's when you really, <laughs> I was like, I would never do coke. But uh, weed is okay. It grows from the ground. It's okay. Uh, shrooms, it's, it grows from the ground. It's okay. That was my justification. So anyway, I, I took shrooms this one time. I had taken it a couple times before, and it was okay. It's whatever. My understanding of it is that when you do it, it, it goes out of your system because you digest it. It comes out of your system in a day. And, you know, that's that what my research had told me at that time. But <laughs> come on, man. I had standards. I didn't just do any you know. Anyway, um, yeah, th- what I 
what I found the hard way was that, uh, yes, it's a plant. Yes, it's a, it's a, it's a mushroom. Uh, but it is a hallucinogen. And at the same time, more than that, it is a spiritual thing as well. So what I found was that uh, after I had done these shrooms, and so what happened was, well, I'll just quickly, very quickly tell you a frame story, okay? Um, during my, my shroom trip, what happened was I, I, um, you know, I died a crazy death. All kinds of crazy illogical things happen when you're hallucinating. Anyway, I, I died, and I found myself in hell, and at that moment, it was so real to me because everything I had heard or read about hell was real to me in that moment. So real. Um, after some time, you know, like, I, I got the idea of, like, the whole, you know, hell is, like, complete separation from God. It's utter hopelessness. And, like, all the screams, anything I had ever imagined about hell, it was so real. And, but still, I just kept praying. I was like, God, please save me. Save me. Save me. You know, just after in, I don't know how much time passed, I see the cloud split and I see the hand of God come down and lift me up. And then I woke up from my shroom trip and I was like, and I went up to my roommates. I was like, whoa, that was the craziest dream I've ever had. <laughs> I didn't really understand what was going on at that moment. But anyway, the next day I, um, you know, everything was normal again. Um, but what I found was that I started getting attacked by a demon. Okay. So we often see things like demon, uh, you know, possession or demon, uh, demonization. We see that kind of stuff happen. We read about it. We hear about it in the church. I, had, I was experiencing it firsthand where a demon was taking physical form and it was performing uh, very lewd acts on me, okay? Uh, this is called an incubus or a succubus, okay? So what was happening was it was taking physical form and it was actually touching me. It was performing acts on me, which is the crazy thing is it felt so real, okay, that it actually physically felt good, but it's like, it messes with your mind. Like, oh my goodness, I cannot believe this is happening to me right now. I am like so far from God. I'm so lost, yet I knew exactly what was happening because I had done some research about it in, when I was in high school. I, I kind of went through this rabbit trail of, of research researching dreams and, and sleep paralysis, kawi, right? Some of us experience that sometimes, and, and, it's an, and eventually uh, incubus and succubus. And so when it was happening to me, I knew exactly what was happening to me. But it was so scary. It was the scariest thing that I have ever experienced in my life. Have you guys ever seen the movie uh, Paranormal Activity? You, you know, it's stupid camera tricks, right? Like a blanket moving or a door going, right? It's stupid. But to me, that is the scariest movie I've ever seen because it so accurately described what I was going through. That's what I was going through for like the next year or more, almost every day. I was experiencing, and you know what though? It forced me, it forced me to pray. It forced me to rely on God because I knew the one thing that could save me from this situation was not a psychologist or psychiatrist or whatever, counseling. It was God because this was a spiritual thing. The demons were directly attacking me. I was like, oh my goodness, I have to rely on God right now. There's no other hope for me right now than God. But you know what I realized much later was that this was actually by the grace of God. Because I was so prideful that if God hadn't done something drastic, like lift his hand of grace over my life, that kept demons out of my life, I would have kept going to this very day probably. 
still smoking weed, still being okay with it, still drinking, being okay with it, doing whatever I wanted, and thinking it was okay. But God in his love knew what I needed. God disciplines those he loves. What parent does not spank his kid when he is out of line? Right? No one at that time when you're receiving the discipline understands why it's there. I didn't understand then. It actually took me years, like very recent, like in the last couple of years, for me to really realize, oh my goodness, if God hadn't really lifted his hand, I would still be there. I literally had to experience demons and hellish things for me to be like, okay, God, this is real. I'm coming right back. But man, did I cling to God in those times. I mean, I really grew by leaps and bounds during that time because what, what the enemy tried to do, you know, tried to like, I don't know. I don't know. what he, I don't know, man. What was he trying to do? He's trying to make me like dis- discouraged or something. But no, it like made me really, really, really sure that the spiritual stuff was real. When I knew that the demons were real, I was like, okay, angels are real too. Devil is real. God is real. God is real. Spiritual stuff is real. I'm not messing with this anymore. Now, I want to say that since that year in 2006, I have never touched weed again, but I am stupid. And in, sometime in 2011, I just had to test. I just had to test it because I'm, I'm pretty stupid. And, you know, I was with some people and they were smoking uh, a joint and it came to me. I was like, I, I just have to test it, okay? So I tried it. And as soon as I did, demonic stuff happened right again. I was like, okay, I'm for real, for real done now. I'm never touching this stuff ever again. Lord, I am so sorry. I'm so stupid. Yeah. So that was in 2011. So not counting that time, it's been 2006, like 12 years since I've like really touched that stuff. So praise God. I'm not doing that stuff anymore. Um, But God definitely showed me. He showed me a lot of things through that experience. He showed me, one, that God is real, that spiritual stuff is real. And another thing, I got my answer, drugs are bad. Drugs are bad. Don't do drugs. Kids, don't do drugs. And of course, most of all, that God's love is real. That he will do anything he needs to, to make sure you get it. And that's what I understood. Okay, um, I got to find my my page here. Everyone, uh, turn to your neighbor and (laughs) tell them how awesome they are. All right, all right, I found my page. So, <clears throat> so back to the parable. Uh, just a few points I want to make if you're taking notes. Just three simple points. First is that God first sought you. God first sought you. If you look on verse, uh, look at verse 20, I'll just read it real, really quickly. It says, uh, So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. So if I go back to my story, you know, it took all of that for me, for me to experience all of that in order for me to come running back to God. 
But it wasn't like I was holy. It's not like I was like, oh, Lord, I'm going to just, okay, one day I'm going to wake up and I'm going to seek you. No. You know, even, even the guy in this, in this parable, it says, I'll say it again. It says, so, uh, so he got up and went to his father. Actually, right before that, it says, uh, what is, oh, in verse 17, it says, when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. It wasn't even remorse. It wasn't even, oh, I miss my dad. I wonder if he'll take me back. No, he just wanted food. He just wanted to eat what the pigs were eating. And if anything, I think what this parable tells us is our really, our really, really, real true condition. And that is that we actually have nothing within us that could merit God loving us apart from himself. There's nothing that we can do to earn it. He first loved us. He first loved us. John, 1 John 4, it says, This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. He first loved you. My next point is that he clothed you. He clothes you. Look at verse 22. It says, But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Bring the best robe and put it on him. That's very beautiful imagery of this son coming and the father coming to run out to meet him before he's even there to give the speech that he was practicing. And he puts this robe around him. But there's something deeper than just this symbol of acceptance. What we see is actually, um, really quickly, you don't have to turn there. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 21, uh, you know, after Adam and Eve had just sinned and they're about to be banished from, from the garden, it says, the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Do you ever think about what that verse entails? I'll read it one more time. It says, the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Where did he get that skin from? Does it say he weaved it? It wasn't a shirt. It was an animal skin. So you see here, God actually foreshadowing uh, the, the sacrifice institution that Israel had to follow. And furthermore, what Christ had done by dying as a sacrifice, the atoning sacrifice. Something had to die in order for them to be accepted. Something had to die to pay for the cost of our acceptance. So we see the parallel here in the prodigal son, the father clothing the son, just as God did to Adam and Eve. There was a cost. My final point is, he put a ring upon your finger. Verse 22, second part of it, it says, put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. I'm no theologian. Um, I'm sure you guys already knew that, but uh, he put a ring upon your finger. I'm sure there are a ton of ways you could interpret that, unpackage that. But I read that as, you know, here I am now giving the word of God despite my whole history. Here, here is a living example of, of God taking someone who was literally in the depths of hell and is using him to give you the word 
And that ring, it represents a lot of things. It could represent covenant. It could represent promise. But I think it could also represent just his, his sonship, right? I'm his son. I'm his representative. I carry his, his authority that he's given to me to do his works, to say, this is my son. And I'm giving you a part into what I'm doing. I'm letting you join in with what I'm doing. And that is amazing that God would use someone like me to come here and speak to you guys. It's quite humbling, actually, because here I see all of you. You are in college and you're here, not out there doing stuff that I was doing. But why? Why all this? Why? Well, the, the simple Sunday school answer is because God loves you. Because he loves you. But that's all we need, right? God loves you. God is love. Why did he do this? Why did he go through the cross? Why did he give up everything for you? Because of love. So we can say of no other religion or other system of belief that God is love. You ever think about that? Like if I had to make my own religion, okay, if I had to make my own like religion, I would probably do this. I'd probably say, okay, uh, it probably can't be polytheistic because it kind of like self-defeating, right? Relativism, self-defeating. It has to be monotheistic, okay? And it's got to be like, yeah, just monotheistic. I think that's what I would arrive at, okay? And then, you know, all this other stuff that you could, you could do and, and add to it. But, you know, it says in the Bible, it says God is love. Whoever does not love does not, lo- love does not know God because God is love. It can be said of no other religion, right? Because why? God, we know our God to be a Trinitarian God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That means before there was ever creation, God was love. See, with a monotheistic religion, a completely monotheistic religion, say like Islam or something, right? Where was love before creation? Where was love before creation? You can't have love before creation, You couldn't have love before creation. But only with the Trinitarian God, like Father, Son, Holy Spirit, were they in perfect union, in love already. That is how we can say that God is love. It doesn't say God loves. It doesn't say God has love. It says God is love. And we see it also in the Father in this parable, running to his Son before he could even make it to him. So many of you might be thinking, okay, like, I'm not really a bad person. I feel like, you know, I don't really need God. I don't need a savior. I never killed anyone. Never did drugs like Sam. <laughs> I'm right here. I'm good. I'm good. I'm just comfortable. I'm just going to do my best. I'm going to live a comfortable life. Do the golden rule. Do unto others as they would have do to me. That's great, but... Um, you know, the Bible in Romans 3.23, it says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Take a minute, just think about it. Look into yourself. It doesn't take much to see. There is sin within us. Jesus says, if you even look at a woman lustfully, you've committed adultery in your heart. He says, if you even hate your brother, you have committed murder in your heart. We all have the potential to become much more evil than we think we can be. No murderer ever dreamt of becoming one. Right? No, one, no kid is like, I want to be a murderer one day. You know? People get dragged away by their desires. The fact is, we are separated from God, 
And we need a savior. No religion can save you. No 12-step program can save you. No amount of behavior modification can save you. We need a savior. And as we saw, uh, there's a cost. There's a cost to this. There's a cost to salvation. There's a cost to it. The wages of sin is death. Something has to die. And we are in debt to God an infinite amount that we could never pay. And so this is our true state. Or maybe you are like the prodigal son, and you see your sin, and you know how badly you've messed up, but you wonder, how could I ever come back to God? I've messed up so badly. How could God ever accept me? How could God ever accept the things that I've done? I'm such a screw-up. You could, you know, this kind of assessment is actually pretty accurate in many ways, right? We are seeing ourselves pretty clearly if that's you. But here's the good news. If it weren't for God's love and faithfulness, we would be doomed and we would deserve every bit of it. But praise be to God that he gave his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the, on the cross for us as an atoning sacrifice. It was the perfect payment for our sins that allows us to come to him and to be back in relationship with God And that's the gospel. That God loves you so much that he's like that father just running to you before you ever thought of coming back to him. That's the love of our father. And in relationship with him is true freedom. Therein lies our freedom. When we come back to him, when we come back to the one whom we were made for, then we experience freedom to the fullest extent, that is when that God-shaped hole in our hearts is filled by God himself. So I'd like to give us a time to, to respond to the word.